And welcome to another edition of the AA Team. I'm on the Barroom Network. I'm Ken Fang along with Stephen Nagishi. And Stephen, we have an action-packed show. Two weeks ago, we were going into the conference championship Sunday. We made our predictions. We'll talk about that in our last segment. But Stephen, a lot of things are going on. We have the Winter Olympics. We have Brian Flores. We've got mm-hmm. a lot of things going on. And plus, we have a, a couple of interesting guests. Tell us what we have tonight. Okay, uh, we booked C.J. Toledano, who is a, uh, a comedy writer, uh, now a head of content with his own uh, company uh, out in Los Angeles. He is a, uh, a big uh, you know, creative uh, lead uh, working and uh, creating great uh, sports-related uh, comedy contents. Uh, he also attended uh, Columbia College in Chicago. So we, we definitely uh, wanted to ask him about his uh, time in Chicago and his uh, fandom of the NBA and what it's like to be, uh, uh, you know, working in a uh, creative field as an Asian American. Mm-hmm. And we also have our second guest tonight, uh, the great Derek Ray of ESPN NBC uh, called the, the Premier League, Bundesliga, Olympic, Olympic basketball, not basketball, Olympic soccer, and also World Cup. He's worked for a uh, myriad of networks. He's one of the best voices out there, and we look forward to having Derek on tonight. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, we have a lot of things to talk about, so let's not uh, further delay of uh, what we're going to discuss. Let's get right off to the bat, of course. Uh, Chicago is an NFL city, so we have to talk about what's going on in the NFL. Let's talk about, first of all, what happened last week. Uh, we were dis- First of all, Tom Brady retired, but that's not the biggest story in the National <laughs> Football League. Uh, right. He retired uh, last last Tuesday, I believe, and then all of a sudden, a few hours later, everyone's saying, well, that's the biggest story. It's going to be the biggest story for this week, and then all of a sudden, Brian Flores said, here, hold my beer. I have something <laughs> to tell you about, and he sued the National Football League in regards to its hiring practices for coaches, it's basically – alleging that the Rooney rule is, which is supposed to have minority uh, candidates be interviewed for jobs before the hiring process, the actual hiring of a coach. Um, He basically said it was a whole sham and it was based on an email from Bill Belichick to another Brian, Brian Dayball, who is now the coach of the uh, New York Mm -hmm. football giants. Steven, this is an explosive story. It is coming out. Um, uh, It's fluid. Um, Brian, if you if you saw the lawsuit and you saw the paperwork in regards to it, it makes a lot of explosive allegations in regards to this. Also against Stephen Ross, the owner of the Miami Dolphins, in regards to uh, allegedly tanking games for first round draft picks in exchange for a uh, bonus or multiple bonuses. Um, and then, of course, the NFL is now hitting back. Stephen, uh, your reaction to this whole thing and, and what's been going on and what is, as we mentioned, is a fluid situation. Yeah, you know, uh, Brian Flores is uh, literally risking his, uh, you know, career on the line. Uh, it's basically Colin Kaepernick uh, moment, you know, except this is a, uh, you know, a coach who is taking a stand against the uh, sham uh, practice, uh, hiring practice, I should say. And, uh, I give Brian Flores a lot of credit for, you know, standing up for, again, uh, the, the system, the Rooney rule that, uh, doesn't really, uh, 
really work for what it was uh, intended to when it was implemented. And, um, you know, uh, late tonight, uh, Houston Texans hired Lovey Smith as the head coach, which the Bears fans are, are still a lot of us are very much fond of. Uh, but at the same time, um, then uh, Mike McDaniel, who got hired by the Dolphins uh, last yesterday, he is biracial. But overall, you know the uh, the Bears included, you know the 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 coaching candidates, the coaches who got hired were overwhelmingly white. You know the Bears mm-hmm. obviously can make a counter argument that Ryan Poles, who was hired as a general manager, was you know African American, but. Um, yeah, it's an explosive story. Brian Flores really going all in with the uh, story about how Stephen Ross, the owner, gave was going to give him $100,000 every time they lost uh, back in 2019 when they were tanking so that they could draft a, a quarterback. That 2020 draft, you had Joe Burrow, uh, Tua, Tango Bailoa, and uh, Justin Herbert. And uh, ironically, despite picking, you know, fifth overall, they ended up taking Tua. And so far, he hasn't really been, you know, what uh, many crack, you know, many expect them out to be. Although, uh, in fairness, uh, he's been a victim of uh, Brian Flores' handling of the quarterback situation, as well as the uh, multiple offensive coordinator that uh, they have gone through. So, but... Early on, you know, a lot of uh, Bears fans were interested in Brian Flores as a, a legitimate Bears, uh, you know, head coaching candidate. And they did interview uh, him. But there were a lot of, uh, you know, stuff that was coming out of there, how he was a control freak and all the uh, the negative stuff um, early on and, and why it led to his firing. Now that I look back, I, uh, I can perhaps 100% concur that maybe, you know, he was given a raw deal. And, uh, you know, it's good for him to stand up, you know, even if he never gets to coach in the NFL, much like Colin Kaepernick never, you know, got to play in the NFL again, you know, you, you have to give it to him for taking a stand on the uh, the first day of, uh, you know, African-American history. You know, it's, it's, um, it's a fluid situation, as we mentioned, as you, as you said, uh, Stephen, he may have cost himself a coaching career in the National Football League. But at the same time, Flores said, uh, especially in an interview with CBS this morning with Gail King, is that he is um, risking something for something he believes in and wants to stand up for it. We know that the NFL will protect its own. Um, there is an op- There was a report. Coming that came out earlier today on Pro Football Talk that um, a Washington, D.C. radio station stood by its reporting of a written report about the Washington football team owner, or we should call them the Washington Commodores now, as they're they're called, <laughs> or as some people may call them when they get have a long losing streak, the Washington Commies. We should be interested in, in seeing when that happens. But right. um, mentioning about a written report that the National Football League was supposed to get in regards to the behavior about the about uh, Dan- Daniel Snyder. The re- report recommended that he be forced to sell the team. However, that report was never sent to the National Football League because uh, Commissioner Daniel, uh, Commissioner Roger Goodell, knowing that that report would somehow get leaked, just instead wanted an oral report. So 
um, somehow that report is going to get released somehow. I, I, I think the radio station has a hand on it. It got leaked to them. It was never sent to the NFL. But we know that they uh, protect their own. I don't think anything's going to happen to Stephen Ross, even though he should be forced to sell the team in regards to the gambling aspect, in regards to uh, the attempt, alleged attempt to tank games, Stephen. So um, this is something that I, I think is very fluid, and I think uh, it's going to be interesting to see how Goodell treats this this week because he has a state of the league address coming up later this week. And I'm sure he's going to be asked a lot of questions by reporters uh, right before the Super Bowl. I think that state of the league address is either Thursday or Friday of this week. I'll be interested in watching that. Oh yeah, absolutely. Roger cannot dodge this and give a half-assed statement uh, regarding this matter. You know, it's an explosive issue. The fact that uh, Colin Kaepernick, happened under his watch and now Brian Flores uh situation under happened under his watch mm-hmm. you know you know there there cannot be any collusion there cannot be any um you know uh, a collusion amongst the uh, the 32 owners 31 of them old white guys with the exception of Shad Khan of course uh in Jacksonville so you know it's it's a uh, you know, you can't find any sort of uh, diversity and, uh, you know, the sham that they're promoting, you know, with the end racism and the end zone and the stickers that uh, obviously they don't practice what they preach uh, to a lot of degrees. And, um, you know, uh, it's it's a it's a, a moment in time where NFL must really, really confront themselves uh, mm-hmm. with this matter. And, you know, quite frankly, Adding more minority owners uh, probably won't change the problems, uh, unfortunately. But um, I think you have to have a lot of diversity. And if you're going to have a lot, if you want a lot of diversity, you've got to be able to start in that area. I know uh, Denver Broncos is on sale. You know, the late Pat Bowen died and his family is looking to unload. And I know, um, I forgot the name of the gentleman, but one of the top candidates for the uh, buyer happens to be an African-American businessman. So mm-hmm. that bears watching right. um, as well. Um, the Saints earlier tonight hired Dennis Allen, who was there a long time, of a defensive coordinator. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, they went through multiple candidates, including, I believe, Aaron Glenn, who was the Alliance uh, DC coordinator who worked in the uh, Saints organization until last year. But, uh, you know, if you're going to promote him from within, you know, why go through that uh, sham interviews? You know, the Vikings went through nine hours with the uh, Giants, D.C., Patrick Graham. Nine hours. Mm-hmm. And then, and you know, they ended up hiring uh, Kevin O'Connell, uh, apparently. So right. something really doesn't add up. And, uh, you know, obviously, like I said earlier, you know, February being, uh, you know, Black History Month. Uh, I, I said African American History Month, so I wanted to apologize for that. Uh, but it is a Black History Month, so you know it's a, a huge, huge uh, risk and a gamble by Brian Flores to uh, you know speak up on this matter on the very first day. And uh, you know it's it's a it bears watching because I'm sure that you know he does he's not BSing about the money that he was offered from you know Stephen Ross. I think it it does add credibility to it. Um, so, you know, we'll, we better keep an eye out on this uh, issue going forward. Mm-hmm. And like you said, 
on the state of the uni, uh, state of the NFL address, what does Roger Goodell do? Mm -hmm. That's a good question. I will say that Brian Flores has hired some very good lawyers, some attack dogs that are very used to suing large organizations. The National Football League has a very bad history in court. It lost, even though it only had to pay $3 to the USFL, it did lose that case being, um, as Howard Cosell used to say, the NFL is a duly adjudicated illegal monopoly. Uh, it also lost the case against Al Davis in regards to moving the Raiders, trying to prevent the Raiders from moving from Oakland to Los Angeles back in the 1980s. So it doesn't have a very good history in court. Uh, they know they don't want to see their owners deposed. They will fight this all the way. But, Stephen, um, we'll talk. We'll make this the last thing before we move on to our next topic, but uh, which will also be NFL-related. But uh, let's just, uh, it, as I mentioned, very fluid. I keep saying this, but it's going to be keep changing, and I'm sure we'll be talking about this in two weeks' time. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's the uh, early stages. You know, we'll see. You know, will NFL be the last one standing, or will Flores and uh, his legal team have the enough uh, – uh, you know, legs to uh, go all the way to the Supreme Court if necessary for this one. The other topic that was NFL related is something in regards to the AAPI community. It is former San Francisco Giants and I hate to say Cleveland Browns quarterback Jeff Garcia. The 49ers quarterback. 49, yeah, 49ers. He also was on the on the uh, Browns as well. Um, oh, that's right. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Jeff Garcia. Uh, made an attack against Mina Kimes. Uh, yes, we've we've criticized Mina Kimes before, but we have to come to her defense on this one. Uh, Jeff Garcia came out against Kimes in regards uh, to some comments that she made, and Garcia, using the old tired defense, she's never played football, so what does she know? Not thinking, of course, most of the writers that follow the National Football League haven't played the game or announcers haven't played the game. People like Al Michaels and Bob Costas and uh, uh, Kevin Harlan, who have are revered announcers and people who have uh, written about the game like Mike Florio, have never played it, but yet seem to be getting a pass. But Mina Kimes does not because she's a woman. Um, your thoughts, Stephen? No, absolutely. I think uh, Garcia has no business... Uh you know, attacking uh, Mina Kimes. Mina uh, has worked hard to earn her status uh, where she is right now. You know, Ken and I, obviously, full disclosure, in our very uh, first debut show, you know, when we had uh, Mikey Chan from the Irish Wire, you know, all three of us were very, very critical of Mina maybe not voicing enough against the uh, AAPI racism and all of that, if you remember. But this is obviously, you know, we can separate the two issues. You know, just because of we were critical towards Mina, for that matter, doesn't mean that I'm going to turn a blind eye on, uh, you know, someone like Jeff Garcia offer, you know, you know, attacking her, you know, with no, you know, basis or no merits. You know, she, like I said, she worked hard to get to where she is. So what, you know, I mean, so what if she didn't play football? You know, a lot of people, you know, Ken and I, of course, you know, we're doing our show. We never played any organized sports. You know, a lot of, uh, you know, sports talk radios and uh, talk show hosts that you see on television uh, every day. Now, many of them, you know, with the exception of very few people uh, have played, uh, you know, any sports. Maybe they might have played a sport, uh, high, you know, football up until maybe high school level or even college. And, you know, they became writers, you know, beat reporters or columnists. So obviously they do have a, you know, uh, a different viewpoint, but 
that doesn't mean that we don't have any we don't have the right to have an uh, opinion on that matter. And, and and I find it really really interesting that when push came to shove, uh, Garcia offered a very very uh, a pathetic apologies or really really got defensive. I have a clip well, that I down. to our producer uh, Aldo Gandia uh, that uh, Jeff Garcia was being interviewed uh, by 95.7 the fan up in the uh, Bay Area. Uh, Aldo, I hope you don't mind playing that clip uh, that I sent you a little bit there. Well, first of all, I don't know anybody an apology for my beliefs and my experience at playing the quarterback position. The difficulty of that position, the expectation on that position, how qualified you have to be to want, be one of 32 starters in the National Football League from a mental standpoint, from a physical standpoint. You know, people want to comment and tear apart, tear down individuals based upon statistics. The only statistic that really matters right now is are you winning games or are you losing games? There was nothing sexist about what I had to say outside of the fact that, yes, women don't play professional football. There are women that do participate in football. But had it been a man saying the same thing, I would have had the same response for that man who has never stood in the pocket, who has never delivered a touchdown pass, who's never taken a hit to the head while trying to make a play from within the pocket. And to be able to sit there and criticize someone at the, at the level that Jimmy Garoppolo is at, at the level of any of these quarterbacks are at, at the level that I played at and say – that it was sexist, misogynistic. Uh, people wanted to say I had there's racism behind it. People want to break me down as a player. Whatever you think, whatever you want to say, doesn't matter to me. I'll- yeah, and uh, there you go. A, a really, it's one thing to, I, I understand, you know, I, I try to, uh, in my job, uh, try to assume positive intent. I don't think there was any positive intent there by Jeff Garcia trying to double down on what he said. Um, really, it really wasn't really much of an apology at all. In fact, it was no apology. Um, but um, no. It, it's, it, I, I, you know, I, I'm trying to give him the benefit of the doubt. I really can't give him the benefit of the doubt here when you're coming out. You're first coming out saying that what you did against me the times. And sure, you can disagree with what she said about Jimmy Garoppolo, but I think 90% of the country or 95% of the country, aside from the Bay Area, maybe even a lot of people in the Bay Area will agree with what she said. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that comment that he said that we saw, had it been a man, he would have said the same thing. Okay, uh, has he gone after Stephen A? Has he gone after, you know, Skip Bayless? You know, the guys who've never played uh, football? You know, Stephen A actually came into her defense along with uh, Molly Karam, the host, on the show first take, um, you know, they were the, uh, you know, the very few people who actually voiced support for Mina Kimes. And I do believe uh, Dan Olavsky, who is her colleague on NFL Live on a regular basis, also came out and uh, yep. supported along with uh, Marcus Spears. But, uh, you know, Jeff Garcia certainly, uh, you know, uh, made a fool out of himself. And I actually called in uh, ESPN 1000 uh, because uh, Carmen and Yurko, because uh, they were talking about the Flores situation. 
And I actually have a clip of uh, my phone call when I had a conversation with uh, Carmen DeFalco. Steven is in Columbus on ESPN 1000. Hey, Steven. How are you guys doing? Okay. So I'm sure you, you know, no one on the station probably touched on this about Jeff Garcia going after Mina Kimes is, uh, you know, women shouldn't be talking about football and all that nonsense last week in the midst of, uh, you know, fine playoff games that just kind of got lost in the shuffle. Um, I told the, I told Merkin, the problem the NFL faces when it comes to racial inequality and injustice is very much the issue that uh, this country is very much facing. I know you had a, a gentleman, a white gentleman from a corporate world talking about how big of a loss it is. But, you know, there are, you know, white people out there who are very much feeling very much insecure and angry about all the uh, the racial inequality and justice. And I'm touching what happened with Mina because nobody in the media world, with the exception of very few people, are talking about this. I, so, Jeff Garcia? I have no idea what you're talking about, I'll be honest with you. I, I mean, uh, Jeff Garcia? Jeff Garcia went after her, yeah. I have no idea. Yeah. That, uh, I didn't know Jeff forward. Garcia was anywhere to speak. I mean, I didn't even know Jeff Garcia had a forum. I, I, I have, I'm sorry, I have no idea. Well, he went on Twitter, Carm. Oh, okay. Oh, he, all right. He went on Twitter. She was uh, going after Jimmy Garoppolo, and he defended Jimmy Garoppolo and uh, the fact and the way that he ends up winning games and uh, his win percentage and stuff like that. And then... And, and, you know, went about the the business of saying, "What does Mina Kimes know about football?" Okay. The tweets are out. You know, it was on Twitter where idiots go to play. Yeah, yeah, Stephen. I mean, I, and I didn't. We, we right. did not neglect it on purpose. I swear to you, I had no. This is the first time hearing of it, so yeah, I had no I idea. Saw. But okay, um, yeah, it's that's silly. We know that that's a silly. Yeah. The, uh, the, the, uh, good, good on you for calling that out, Stephen. <laughs> um, and. And it, it, it is, uh, of course, um, sports is hyper local, so I, I'm not surprised that uh, the host in Chicago didn't hear about that. But as you mentioned, didn't get a lot of play outside of media circles. We had awful announcing, of course, we're on top of it. Um, and of course, there were people, of course, it got big play in the Bay Area because Jeff Garcia was the former quarterback of the 49ers there. But still, um, I'm glad for you to make that comment and, and, and calling that out. A good call up by you, Stephen. Thank you, Ken. Uh, for those who don't know, Ken is a associate editor with the sports blog uh, Awful Announcing. Um, the reason I called is it's just basically if the media is going to call out about the uh, the issue about Robert Flo uh, Brian Flores, sorry, that we uh, began with, then the media has to know about you know the uh, the misogyny that uh, Mina Kimes is facing. Look, I'm not. I didn't go. I didn't call uh, that show to you know attack Carmen per se, at all. Okay, I want to make sure of that because I know a lot of uh, listeners uh, of this show as well as the Barroom Network have called in or listened to Six Seventy to Score and ESPN Chicago for many many years. So obviously they have a, a preference or bias towards a certain host. That I understand it. Uh, I want to add one more thing. Uh, Back four years ago or so, when uh, the Dodgers played the Astros, uh, Ken, you might remember uh, Astros' Eunice Gurriel did the uh, slant eye yeah. uh, controversy to, um, you know, Hugh Darvish, who was traded from the Rangers to Dodgers in the uh, midseason trade. And uh, I actually called 
Carmen and Yurko again. And I told them, you know, you guys aren't talking about this. And obviously, uh, you know, they, they weren't fully aware of that. Or, and I do remember Carmen saying, we were not told by the management not to talk about this or anything like that. So there's this bit of a, you know, discrepancy that, you know, the, the I wouldn't want to call it the ignorance, but, you know, if you're going to call out about the issue of Brian Flores, then you need to be more mindful about the bias and the sexism that exists in the media, if you're going to talk about it, because obviously it doesn't add credibility about them bemoaning about, you know, Rob, uh, Brian Flores and the hiring practices and how Rooney Rule really doesn't uh, serve its purpose when, you know, Mina Kimes is being attacked because she does, she didn't play organized sports. Um, having been a guest of several sports radio stations across the country, not in Chicago, of course, but I think uh, one of the better uh, sports radio hosts is Chad Dukes, uh, which is on, on 106.7 out in Washington, D.C. Um, yeah. Every time I talk with him, very uh, does his homework, uh, asks the great questions, and uh, whether he's talking about mixed martial arts, whether he's talking about entertainment, sports media, the Washington football team, uh, the Washington Nationals, he does his homework, and uh, you appreciate someone like that uh, when you become a guest on there, and he's not asking silly um, narrative, try, try to fit his own narrative. He's always there to ask um, um, questions that uh, he really, and he feels that the, the well, listeners want to know about, and I appreciate something like that. I understand, however, sports is all hyper local, so I kind of, I kind of understand why the guest, why your host that you talked to didn't know about it, but he should have known about it. So I, I'm glad that you a good again, good good call out by you, Stephen. Appreciate that. Thank you very much, Ken. Uh, moving uh, on to the next, our next subject. Oh, sorry, yeah. you have one more thing. Okay, go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead. We were going to talk about the uh, the Winter Olympics that uh, finally. Yes. Started. Of course, the Winter Olympics have begun. They started last week in Beijing, um, in the uh, in the People's Republic of China, um, the PRC, as some people know it, uh, run by the Communist. Uh, of course, the PRC run by the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP, and that's what I will be calling the the. Either I will be saying PRC or CCP quite a bit um, in regards to China. Um, the ratings for. The first night of the Olympics was the lowest in history for the Winter Olympics. Only 7.7 million people watched. The uh, opening ceremony on Friday was the lowest in, in quite some time, right below the uh, opening ceremony in Pyongyang four years ago in, in, the, Republic, in the Republic of Korea. Um, and now we're seeing issues all over the place. Um, have, I, I'm not watching. I'm not listing the Olympics in awful announcings, viewing picks. Stephen, have you watched any of the Olympics since it began? Not much, to be honest with you. Um, we had uh, Professor Jules Boykoff, a noted uh, uh, Olympic critic on our show. And, um, you know, we barely had enough time between the uh, Tokyo Olympics, which pushed back. Uh, from its original date to the summer of last year. And now about six, seven months later, you know, we have the Winter Olympics. So there's definitely a fatigue in that. Um, I remember talking to my colleague, uh, who's not a sports fan, by the way. Um, I talked to him about the Olympics. And this really kind of stuck to me. 
what he said. Um, he hates the melodrama that um, you know the NBC were enforcing on the viewers per se. Yeah. And I did kind of understand that. Look, look, the athletes obviously are not at fault. Neither are their families who've made hard sacrifices. So, you know, we're not crapping on their efforts and what they have done. You know, in, in many, many ways, they've been, you know, caught between rock and hard places, between the IOC and the, uh, you know, the China and, uh, you know, the boycotts and, you know, diplomatic boycotts and everything. To, to say. And, you know, the opening ceremony by IOC chairman Thomas Buck, which Dan Wetzel of Yahoo called it a, uh, uh, a propaganda written by China, you know, China, Chinese government. And I couldn't agree more, you know. And I spoke about this uh, back when we had Professor Boykoff. You know, pretty soon the Olympics and, you know, the, the World Cup and all those global sports are only going to be held by Asian countries like China and then, you know, uh, you know uh, Japan or any other places, which obviously has a terrible history when it comes to human rights and women's inequality uh, per se. And, uh, you know, the, uh, the governing bodies of these uh, sports organizations are just basically going for the ride, which kind of uh, embarrasses... Uh, embarrasses me and it angers uh, many, many people uh, pretty much, you know, deep inside. And we also talked about, you know, Peng Shui, who is the uh, Chinese tennis star who had been accused of, uh, who accused the, uh, one of the high ranking Chinese government officials of uh, sexual harassment and had been kind of banished for quite some time up until last week when, you know, she was given an interview. Uh, but obviously we all know that uh, that's kind of a somewhat of a sham with the, the Chinese uh you know, media or the gov government, uh, you know, skimming through questions and having the uh, official stand in for the interview, you know, for translating purposes. But, you know, the whole thing obviously doesn't really, uh, really interest me at all. Mm -hmm. One thing that uh, occurred during the opening ceremony, the Olympic flame was lit by uh, what was reported to be an ethnic Uyghur. Who yes. and of course we know about the ethnic Uyghurs being um, basically being uh, put under a, a, an ethnic genocide by the Chinese government. Um, mm. They've been criticized. The CCP, the Communist Chinese Party, have has been criticized. The government has been criticized for human rights violations uh, on the Uyghurs. But for them to have a Uyghur come out and say, "Hey, look, here's an ethnic Uyghur doing the lighting the flame." And but what's interesting is that this person has disappeared. We don't know where this person is and we don't know where where it where they are. So um, it's interesting um, how the China tries to say, hey, look, we're not that bad. We're trying to show that we are actually good to the Uyghurs by having the, a person of, of uh, Uyghur ethnicity like the Olympic flame. But at the same time, um, it's trying to brush this whole issue under the rug. No, absolutely. You know, doing that obviously only ironically inflames the uh, the anger from international community. And uh, it doesn't really uh, help anybody. And certainly it doesn't help the image of China. So, mm -hmm. you know, I'll be interested to see uh, where this uh, Olympics uh, go uh, until the 20th. So we got about less than two weeks to go. Yep. And we, you mentioned Peng Shui, who is the tennis player. 
uh, who um, has been missing. Of course, as you mentioned, accused a uh, Chinese government official of sexual assault. She has come out since then on um, Chinese social media and social uh, and also official government channels saying that she did not mean it. It was an excessive under- misunderstanding. Um, no one from the Women's Tennis Association or her fellow players have been able to independently contact or or independently uh, uh confirmed all this information mm-hmm. uh the ioc plans to parade out her at several official events along with a former swimmer kirsty coventry or coventry i should say coventry is the rhode island um pronunciation my apologies for for <laughs> my rhode island native um uh pronunciation but kirsty coventry uh an, an olympic swimmer from zimbabwe they're going to have her sit with Kirsty at several events, just to, and it was going to be like the IOC saying, "Oh, we are fine, Feng Shui is fine." Again, again, uh, trying to sweep the whole issue under the rug and trying to say that, um, "Oh no, you've been able to contact Peng Shui, even though she's still under house arrest." Yeah, it's a sham. It's a, like I said, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's something that uh, people can look through, uh, through the uh, whole charade and that uh, hopefully people aren't going to you know maybe except for the several you know ioc idiots you know people will see through the 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 propaganda that the uh, you know the republic of china is trying to pull through in these uh, international sporting events absolutely um but uh We'll be going. We we, uh, we had an action-packed first segment, Stephen. We had a lot of things we wanted to discuss, and uh, we'll have more to discuss in our last segment. But uh, we're going to have a guest come up uh, coming up in our next segment. And Stephen, we uh, look forward to having CJ Toledano uh, coming in, and we will have that coming up after a break. The past year has seen a 1,900% rise in anti-Asian hate crime in New York City alone. With 2,800 incidents reported across 47 states and Washington, D.C., this is a national crisis, and we need your help to call it out. Call it a crime. Call it what it is. Racism. Let's stand up together against hate. Learn more at StopAAPIHate.org. We're back with the AA team, Ken Fang, along with Stephen Nagishi. Stephen, let's bring in our, our first guest tonight. All right. Uh, we have CJ Toledano, who used to be a writer at Bleacher Report, also wrote for The Tonight Show starring Jimmy Fallon. And now he is the, the founder and creator of Follow Through, his own uh, media studio in Los Angeles. CJ, how are you tonight? Hey, Ken, Stephen, I'm great. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for coming uh, to our show tonight. Of course. Great to have you on, CJ. A lot of things to to ask you. Uh, As someone who's a late night fan, love to talk about this stuff about Jimmy Fallon. But, Stephen, I know you have some questions. Go ahead. No, I appreciate it. Uh, You know, CJ, uh, you used to uh, live in Chicago, having attended uh, Columbia College in Chicago, which is Mm -hmm. obviously a college in Chicago that is – slanted towards more media related. Yep. Uh, what was that experience like? What was that uh, experience like, uh, you know, attending and living in Chicago around that time? 
Yeah, I mean, to be completely honest, and it might not be the uh, what everyone wants to hear, but uh, Columbia College was simply a school that I could get into that got me <laughs> to Chicago. Um, you know, I, I had read about them. They had a film and TV department, and um, I was always, you know, intrigued and interested in, you know, wanting to make um, media, um, whether it was mm -hmm. from live performing, whether it was from writing for television, being on television, um, you know, writing and directing movies. So I was like, you know what, if, I'm, if I have to go to school, which my parents, you know, urged <laughs> me, you know, being immigrants coming to America, this is the land of opportunity. If you're not going to become a doctor, you got to keep pursuing <laughs> education. So I was like, you know what? It'll get me out of my hometown of Erie, Pennsylvania. And it'll get me to a big city, Chicago, which had all the arts. Um, and, you know, it was great. It, honestly, Chicago itself was great. Um, I think Columbia is a great school for anyone who um, even has just a small interest in, in pursuing a, a career in entertainment. Um, they have, you know, the facilities and the equipment to go out and make stuff on your own. Um, but Chicago itself just has a great theater scene. Um, at the time, they had Second City, they had IO, um, Annoyance, and it was all about, you know, enrolling in comedy classes and performing stand-up uh, stand comedy at all the, the local bars and theaters in town. So I, I think it's really the formative years of, of my life and my career. And of course, Chicago, uh, of course, has uh, great um, traditions in uh, improv, of course, Second City and the yep. Groundlings and all that stuff. So, CJ, you came right. You came right into the town, which is uh, pretty much known for that. Yeah, I think, you know, I, it was like my senior year of high school. And I always I mean, I grew up on on SNL, on Conan, Letterman, um, just being a huge comedy fan. And. I'd read in an SNL book that a lot of the um, people getting hired for those shows were in Second City. It was either, you know, an Ivy League school or Second City. And I had a better <laughs> chance of paying to be enrolled in Second City than getting into an Ivy League school. So um, I just saw it as, you know, a place to learn and meet people and, and just get those reps um, to making a career in comedy. Mm -hmm. And comedy, of course, is one of those careers which, you know, you're starving all the time, but you're always uh, working late, uh, working well into 2 a.m., getting up at 11 a.m., a lot of self-loathing. But yep. still, it, it's one of those careers when you make it big, it's like one of the it's like that high when you're on the on the stage and you hit that joke that hits it out of the park. It's there's probably no, no feeling like it. Yeah, I mean, you know, my, my wife is a comedian as well, and um, we're not famous by any means, but we do make a living doing it, and and it's it's very much worth it. You know, it's like I, I look at my my coworkers and the people that um, we collaborate with, and I, I'm grateful every every day that I'm like, you know, these are some of the most creative and passionate people that I've ever met. These are, you know, people who had those dreams and and took a huge gamble and risk. Um, and live those those years that turned into decades of just not making any money. And then when you can finally say you're doing it for a living um, and, it, you know, you're, you're really just genuinely interested in what every day is going to bring, like um, that's that's worth um, any salary that, that I can get um, for it. And, and so far, so good. And of course, you know, we've with the with podcasts and streamer streamers and, and web and digital and all that like there's more opportunities out there 
um, that, you know, who knows what a, a career in comedy really is. It can mean so many different things. Absolutely. So I mentioned you used to be a writer for The Tonight Show starring Jimmy Fallon. Mm -hmm. um, how long were you uh, a writer for the staff there? And what was it like to work with Jimmy? Because, you know, Jimmy gets a lot of bad rap, you know, for being somewhat, uh, you know, some people say, you know, over jealous or overreactive, uh, you know, with the fake laughs and all that kind of stuff, you know, you hear about, you know, when he's on the show and there's some validity to it, but, you know, has somebody who worked closely with them, what is something that, uh, you know, we don't know about Jimmy that I think uh, people should know about? Yeah. Okay. Let's, um, I want to answer this uh, very honestly, you know, I have no real connection to the show anymore. Uh, I was a young, I was a young writer. I was uh, 23 turning 24 at the time. And, you know, I think a lot of late night writers will say this as well. Um, you have minimal, you have minimal um, contact with, with the host, you know, and, and here's the thing of like, and this is maturity speaking too, is like, of course, these are celebrities. They have to talk to cele other celebrities every day. Their hours are crazy. They have to go out after the show and party and, you know, keep those you know, relationships and socialize with Hollywood. Right. And so, right. you know, there were times where he had bad days and um, he didn't want to talk to a 23, 24 year old writer. And that, that happened to me. It happens to everybody. It happens to some of the most successful late night writers in the game. Um, and that was a little bit of my experience, you know, and that was my first big job in entertainment. And it was a wake up call. And it was also um, a great learning experience. You know, it's like, in, in that moment, I remember, and it, it took a few years after um, I had left there to be like, how come that didn't work out? How come I'm not, you know, there long term, right? Um, and I just wasn't prepared for the politics for the the competition against people, uh, not against, you know, it's not as, it wasn't as collaborative as I wished it would be. You know, I was a little bit naive and, and that's like most entertainment, most workplaces, it's competitive. And there are people who, um, you know, figure out the game and that, that becomes what the job is. It's, it's navigating the game. Like, Oh, how am I getting my jokes and my material seen by the host most, or, um, am I becoming best friends with the head writer? And is my stuff being, you know, prioritized over this young writer, not to say any specific moments where that was happening to me, but it definitely exists. And I think honestly, um, uh, this might be too inside, but you know, there's always constantly battles, um, in, in movements. And this is why, you know, there are, um, there's a union, there's, you know, there's protests, there's, um, you know, a push for change um, because sometimes uh, voices are minimalized, whether that's from age, race, or, or class. Um, and, that, you know, for that to be my first job in entertainment, it was, it was definitely um, uh, eye-opening. And, um, you know, it was, I, I'm, I'm so grateful for that being one of my first things because it just, it set precedent and it set, um, just a foundation to for what I was in, in store for um, for the rest of my career. One of the criticisms of some uh, of late night programming, uh, especially in, in the in the writers' room, is that it wasn't diverse. Uh, yeah. Did you find that uh, situation when you were at the Tonight Show? Absolutely. I mean, I was the only Asian um, writer. Um, if I'm if I'm correct, I was the only Asian writer in the show's history at that time. Mm -hmm. um, and then even just keeping tabs on it over the following years, there was 
only one or two Asian writers max. Um, and it, it was always, you know, and it's still talked about this way where it's like, oh, we have an Asian writer. And it's like, listen to that sentence. You have an Asian, you have one Asian writer. And then it's like, You're right. you know, we're, we're diverse. We're diversifying our staff. It's like the fact that that's like so intentional of we have one Asian writer, there, there's still progress to be made, you know? Um, of course, everyone should be hired, you know, because they're funny, um, but, it's um we're not making progress or it's not um it hasn't come a long way if there's not more than one asian writer because off the top of my head i can name you know 108 funny asian people that deserve to write on late night deserve to be on the show as performers or have their own shows you know um i mean uh, america is uh, has a large asian population how come our, our media doesn't look that way exactly right the um, only person i can think of uh, who's on tv you know who's a writer is karen chi the uh, writer yep. for the late night with uh, Seth yeah. Myers. That's the yeah. closest one I can think of. She's great. I'm very you know funny. Her? Um, I just know her from Twitter. I've been a fan of hers. Whatever. Yeah. I, 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 yes. She kind of came on my radar when uh, she started writing for Seth, and I started following her on Twitter, and she's great. She's also appears quite a bit on the NPR show Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me mm -hmm. um, <laughs> as, as a writer, and uh, very, very funny person. Um, you can tell when she uh, uh, has a joke, and she's right on top of it. And uh, <laughs> we certainly want to hear more Asian voices, especially on Late Night, as you mentioned, CJ, because this is a melting pot, and we need to see more Asian faces on TV, not just as a token hire. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, yeah, there, there's been some progress and it, it's so funny because I think when people are stereotyping Asians, um, and you know, they say that, you know, they, they should be doctors or they're doctors or lawyers, you know, and stuff like that. And it's like, here's the thing. I, my, I had immigrant parents who, again, like wanted me to become a doctor. And so I, I remember my dad having a heart to heart with him and being like, you can be whatever you want, as long as you treat it like medical school. And so I said, I'm going to treat <laughs> comedy like medical school i was going to put in the hours and that's always my advice to anybody is you know i'm going to put in the amount of you know weight and commitment and hours as what it would be to go to medical school um so i definitely still that, that stereotype is real um but i just decided to apply it to comedy entertainment what is More the t-shirt that you're wearing More is that a michael jordan t-shirt this is a michael jordan golf tournament shirt i um <laughs> yeah i have uh, I have a one of my my big hobbies is collecting vintage sportswear and obscure sports um, memorabilia. So <laughs> that is amazing. That is awesome. Uh, I Thank wanted you. to kind of uh, throw in a little bit of a, a curveball here. Um, sure. Both of us, we all know Aquafina, you know, who's a uh, yeah. rapper comedian, and uh, she recently left uh, Twitter after her criticism of, uh, I guess the uh, the black black uh, voice ex explanation um you know you're a co comedian obviously you know you lived in new york you know you work in an industry that you know asian people are very much marginalized in that field um what are your thoughts on the uh, the criticism that she received and the um, somewhat of a non-apology that she put up on her uh, twitter before she went away yeah, you know, and and I, I've been thinking about this a lot ever since sort of the the criticism as a um, you know started surfacing, and um, you know what's unfortunate is the, the non-apology that you had mentioned, right? Um, I think we're all human, and we all make mistakes, and um, I, I think it's admittance, and it's it's what your actions are afterwards, and. 
Um, unfortunately, when I had read her apology, I, I just, it, it, like you said, it was sort of a non-apology. I didn't read sorry in there. Um, it, it seemed a little bit more like a defense. And, you know, um, I, I'm not, there was a clip that was sort of going viral where she was also saying it was complicated and whatnot. And, and I, I agree with her. I think it is complicated. I think, you know, um, you, you grow up in a, in a community and, and maybe, you know, your friends talk that way or what you're exposed to on television, what you're a fan of, you know, if you're a fan of hip hop and uh, black culture, like I can see why, you know, you can start to speak that way. And, um, you know, and I think it's understanding that and um, explaining why why she may have had, you know, the black scent. Um, but what it came down to, to me, that disappointed me was just the non-apology and the, listen, here's what I'm going to do. If, if I built a career off of black culture, I want to give back to black culture. Um, you know, here's what I want to do. Um, and unfortunately, I didn't see that in the apology. And I, I hope, you know, I hope um, she does it. And I don't think it needs to be publicized. I, I think like, you know, I have friends, uh, uh, friends who are friends with her, you know, and I, they're great people. And um, they said that she's great. And, and I believe them. And I hope that her recovery from this isn't to get the, the acceptance and, you know, be like, oh, yeah, I understand why you did this. I think it's at this point, here's what I'm going to do. Um, and I'm not going to do it for the rehab of my own image. I'm going to do it because I believe that I owe something to black culture. Um, and I, you know, I, I just feel like that, that would be my advice to a lot of what people are calling cancel culture is listen, times have changed. Some things are, uh, being called out and, 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 you know, saying it's not okay. Um, you know, people make mistakes, but it's what you're going to do going forward. And, um, I think that's what people need to focus on after, you know, these things are done. Good call out by both of you on that one, because, you know, we, as much as we try to defend Asian, the AAPI community here, we also call it out for bad behavior. And uh, CJ, a great call out. Stephen, great call out by both of you gentlemen, because, you know, we, we, have, to, we have to talk real here. And, and I'm, yeah. I'm glad we're doing that here. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Thank you. know, I appreciate the honesty on this matter, CJ. Um, I want to talk to you about, you know, you created your own uh, creative agency. Um, tell me what led to starting that agency and what is the uh, the most proud accomplishment you've done? You know, because you've been, what, only one year? Uh, yeah, a little over a year the, now. Uh, the agency, correct? Yeah. So um, it's funny. My career took a little bit of a turn where uh, sports creative and sports entertainment um, became a large focus at a lot of um, – you know, professional teams, uh, leagues, and brands, especially in the social media age, um, started focusing on. And so I uh, was sought out because of my TV experience and just the reputation of um, being a huge fan of sports. And so that landed me at Bleacher Report um, and the NFL, back to Bleacher Report at House of Highlights. And then after those years of just sort of putting myself through creative boot camp as a writer, producer, and director, um, and I, my name started, you know, to to grow and like, um, you know, more places wanted to work with me. Um, I, I said to myself, you know what, I I'm passionate about this. I think um, this is a for real void that needs to be filled in our in our industry. And if I'm um, being perceived as one of the experts, why not start my own thing? 
because one, I know other creatives out there who are passionate about sports, but you know, we all think, oh, we're not athletic or we can't play pro sports. Sports, you know, uh, as a career isn't a, isn't a reality for me. And the thing is, we're finding that out that it absolutely is from being a podcaster, from being a writer and director and making those sports, um, whether it's, you know, highlight reels or, or, or packages or sports movies or TV shows. You know, one of the most popular TV shows right now is Ted Lasso. Um, one of the greatest documentaries of all time is Hoop Dreams. Like sports is simply, I think, a catalyst for um, real stories from real people, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, it's a it's a game, right? But it, it, it almost... It, it reveals people in, in their character um, from determination, uh, from what they have to overcome. And um, physicality is only 50% of it. I think it's, it's mental. And it, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of joy. There's a lot of sadness. There's a lot of comedy. And I just was really combining my skills and my background in, in comedy and entertainment and like the understanding of pop culture and the zeitgeist that um, – with the backing of a, a, a pretty reputable studio out here in, in LA called Conscious Minds, I had pitched them this idea, um, and we said, "Let's just go for it. Let's see what we can do." And um, so grateful that people are are so one interested and want to learn more about it and hear more about it. And then it goes into like, "All right, let's make a show." Um, and so we've made shows with Bleacher Report. Um, and with the NFL and uh, Jordan Brand, which I would say Jordan Brand, we did a series called Take It From LA, which is a docu-series about um, untold basketball stories in cities all over the world. Uh, the first season was with um, in LA. Uh, and I, you know, my team, we, we did the creative and uh, we collaborated with Jordan Brand and I directed the, the whole series. Um, hosted by Jordan Liggins, uh, fantastic talent. And yeah, it's really just putting a spotlight on, you know, athletes are, are really disevaluated based on, you know, their stat line, right? And so I was like, but these are human beings. So let's find those stories that make each of them unique. CJ, as someone who knows about content and also writing and content is king, as we all know in this in yeah. this uh, streaming world, what are some of the ideas and some of the pitches that you have to think of and to, to try to keep your agency fresh and also trying to create that content? Yeah, I think it's finding voices out there. Um, it's finding voices out there that are, uh, I think in the, in the past few decades, uh, a lot of people out there are the, uh, or a lot of the successful people out there and what we see every day are the talking heads who talk about, again, you know, the, the numbers or it's all math. It's all, you know, this player averages amount. They, sh- they deserve this, you know, money and blah, 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 and all that. And to me, it's like, who are the people that are really one have their own unique perspective on, on sports and stories um, or, or have really fun, entertaining takes. Um, I think one, it's being the home for that is like, we will take untraditional talent and work with them and figure out, you know, the best way, uh, the best platform for them. Um, I think it's, you know, one, one thing I learned from Bleacher Report was um, how do we echo the fan, the fan sentiment, right? Like we all talk about sports, like the most fun way we talk about sports is when we're in our living room with a bunch of buddies on a Sunday or in a bar. How can we bring that to television or the internet? How can we recreate that? Um, And is that through podcasts or interview shows? Or again, like it's putting people, um, you know, on screen that don't have a degree in broadcasting or all that because some of the most passionate 
sports fans didn't do that. They spent all their time just watching sports. Um, and I think that's what we want to do at follow through is continue to just like embrace the unique perspective of, of the game. It's very important because as you are well aware, as a writer, that storytelling aspect of trying to find compelling content. And it's, 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 it's almost the same way when you're doing video as well and, and trying to pivot to video. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, I, I told my team, it's like last year isn't going to look like this year and that's okay. Like, let's embrace the evolution of this thing. Like, cause as much as we can do that, we'll be, we'll be a company. You know what I mean? If we can keep up, if we can do a little bit of the, um, the experimenting and then also continuing to, to figure out how to make the, the consistent stuff um, better every day. Like if we hit those two points, we're going to be great. We're going to be in it for a long time. Oh, that's fantastic. And uh, I wish you, you know, nothing but the best in, you know, obviously you're still one year into the, uh, you know, just having started your own studio. And I'm sure there's uh, many, many big things ahead of you. Um, before we go, I wanted to talk to you. You know, you touched on your uh, marriage with, with a fellow comedian. Um, you know, I found a very interesting article about how you met your wife you know, uh, through meeting in Chicago, through Second mm -hmm. City and everything. Um, I wanted to ask you, you know, about, you know, marrying a fellow comedian, obviously a non-Asian one. And, uh, yeah. you know, we, we all know about the, uh, you know, the racism within our own community. And, uh, you know, uh, what is what, what is kind of like the uh, interracial marriage at a time like this, where I know people would probably give you um, the funny looks, you know, even well before the the pandemic and everything like that. Yeah, I, I mean, it's so funny because me and her, while we're we're different races, we're comedians, right? You know, it's like we're like, oh, we're the same. But when you go out, you definitely get that looks. So like I was just thinking about this the other day. So my wife, um, she was doing a a road gig, and I had to take her to the airport. Um, and so I drove her to the airport, and of course, I I got out. Um, we we're at the curb and I got out and I got her bags and I gave her, her bags and I see everyone looking around and I like, and maybe I'm assuming things, but they were looking at me as if I was her Uber driver. Right. <laughs> Cause you know, my, my wife is a, is a very beautiful, um, you know, Irish, uh, Midwestern, uh, uh, woman, uh, from Indianapolis. So you're married now. What's that? I definitely, yes, I definitely married. I mean, look at, look at her. She's oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's me. Um, and I definitely was like, everyone <laughs> thinks I'm her Uber driver. And so I gave her a big kiss and I was like, now everyone thinks I'm a really good Uber driver. Um, <laughs> so, but you get those looks and, and again, that's just, it's funny. It's 2022 and this still, still exists. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and, and the thing is, you know, as a, what worries me is like when I was a kid, I, I saw being Asian as a superpower, like truly, like as someone who wanted attention. And I, I grew up in Marshalltown, Iowa, in Erie, Pennsylvania. I was the only Asian kid in all my classes. I just I wanted the attention. I wanted people to go, oh my God, there's CJ. He's the only Asian kid. And I'd be like, yeah, look at me. Give me all the attention. I want I want to be different. But then I, I you know, and this is something that I only realized in the last few years. That's not the case for every kid out there. You know, some people, some kids are find it as a disadvantage. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's where society needs to help, you know. Um, 
and society needs to help. And, and also too, with immigrant parents coming, um, coming over and not knowing that, that that can be, you know, the American culture. And so parents, I mean, kids are supposed to be able to look up to their parents for that help. But when their parents don't understand that, as you know, I can say my parents didn't understand that yet at all either. They thought everything was great over here when they first got here. Like, oh, the opportunities are here. We're making so much more money than we did in our homeland. That's all that matters. Suck it up. And so I'm like, well, where do these kids have the support? Um, and, and are they getting bullied and all that stuff? And I, that, that's what worries me. And, um, and you know, and to me, I, I don't think I'm famous to be a role model for anyone, but I just, I'm like, you know, I, I want to tell, you know, the Asian kids out there coming up, I'm like, embrace, you know, um, your heritage, embrace what makes you different. Um, you know, almost just quiet the haters really. Um, and you know, the thing is like, you're different and, and, you know, live your life that way. Um, this is an advantage when it comes down to it. Um, and you know, the rest of the world isn't really what your, your class full of just, you know, only white people is the rest of the world is diverse. Um, and it'll, it'll work out to your advantage, um, as you get older, but, uh, yeah. It's uh yeah I mean that it's it's an ongoing like um, question in my head of like question and, and gratefulness that I, I was okay um, and how can I make it better for future generations? Uh, that's a great way to to, to put it, CJ. Um, and of course, as we are in Lunar New Year, uh, and of course we embrace the hashtag very Asian here. Yep. Um, anything special you've done for for Lunar New Year? I have not. Um, no, I, I haven't. I haven't. No, I haven't. I, maybe that's something I need to do. Okay. <laughs> maybe I will. I will do it. Okay. Well, we just wanted to put that out there. Uh, CJ Toledano, he is the uh, head of creative at Follow Through. He founded the company. It's a year old. There's a lot of great content out there. Uh, we like to thank you for coming on. We're going to have you have you on again. You're, you're Love to. fascinating uh, stuff out there. And uh well, we want us to discuss more about this this great marriage to this that, that you have. So, <laughs> Thank you. As, as two comedians together, uh, there's a great another great picture of you guys. <laughs> uh, we have fun. We have fun. Absolutely. Uh, we'll definitely have you on. Thank you so much for coming on with us, and uh, we hope to talk to you again soon. Thanks, Thank you, Thanks, CJ. Steven. Take Thanks care. Thanks so much. We'll talk to you again soon. And the Double A team will continue after this message. All right. Thanks so much, guys. Really understanding the difference between empowerment and agency versus objectification. And the difference is always who has the power. If I choose that I feel my best and, and I look my best and I'm the most confident in a certain outfit, then I am empowering myself to make that choice and to tell you that I'm, I, I'll show you who I am and let you know who I am. You can't make those decisions based off what I'm wearing. But if it's objectification because the producers or directors or whoever runs a show is saying you have to wear a dress every show and high heels have to be this high, and you have to dye your hair blonde. It's a very different thing. Right. So right. I do think we have to remember that because a lot of people will look at women who are stepping into their own sexuality and and accuse them of not being also allowed to talk about harassment and other things. They are very different things. It's about choice and power.
the coaching by both Coach Griffin and Dylan in youth football, but that had just ended. It was Dylan's season had just ended, and when Griffin passed away, um, and so then, I, as I said, my mom she had um, prior to Griffin passing away though. Uh, on it was a Mother's Day, actually the day after Mother's Day that very year, she found out she had stage four uterine cancer, mm-hmm. and um, so she survived an un, uh, just a lethal um, surgery where they removed a lot, um, and so she somehow survived that only to eight months later pass away. Um, and so there was kind of a rough time there for, for me, it felt like everybody was going, nobody was coming. Yeah. And, um, and so, uh, yeah, I, I, that led me to a, a serious, serious bout of depression to the point where um, in August of 2015, I actually shot myself and in the head, underneath the chin. And, um, with the intention of not being here uh and so as i look back now um everything i didn't have to live for i now have to live for and so um it it was just a period of time where life was tough and it was once you get down what my experience is once i got down that low um, it didn't feel like it was ever going to end, and uh, unless I ended it. We're back on the double-A team, and of course, during the break, you may have seen the promo for Peggy Kaczynski's show here on the Barroom Network. We want to give her a plug because she has a new show coming up on ESPN 1000. It'll be on every Saturday. She'll be on with Dion Miller and Robert Federer, the great uh, uh, media critic who writes uh, for the Chicago Sun-Times. Um, he's going to mention, he mentioned that uh, they'll be on from 11 to 1 a.m., uh, not 11, not 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. every Saturday. They'll both be on. And I, Peggy, who's just a, a, a sports media maven in Chicago, we want to give her a shout out and uh, let, let mm-hmm. uh, mention about that she's going to be doing a show on ESPN 1000, which is, of course, one of the sports media behemoths in Second City. Absolutely. You know, Peggy's been a, a longtime reporter. She also worked at the ESPN uh, for a long time. Um, you know, I think a barroom network is uh, very, very lucky to have her uh, have her own show interviewing women uh, working in the industry. And then Dion Miller is a rising star in the uh, Chicago market uh, at uh, ABC7 Chicago covering the Bears and other sports. So, uh, you know, um, I'm very curious to see how the show turns out and uh, hopefully it will, uh, it will turn into uh, something great in the long run for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, we're rooting for both of them and uh, uh, best of luck to uh, to Peggy and Dion as they start their new show. Uh, Stephen, let's talk about uh, while we're waiting for Derek Ray, the great soccer announcer and the great soccer voice of uh, the English Premier League, Bundesliga and World Cup for uh, NBC, Fox and ESPN. Um, let's talk about uh, a soccer related story that's come up over the last week. Uh, of course, that was the U.S. men's soccer team. They played in horrid conditions in Minnesota 
uh, in a game against Honduras, which they won. You have to expect they would win. It was two degrees out there. I think the wind chill was minus 80, 800. So it's just ridiculous to play the game. I understand what the United States Soccer Federation was trying to do, U.S. soccer, saying that, okay, we want to recreate what Canada has done by playing in Edmonton in uh, Tim Horton Stadium, not Tim Horton Stadium, but out in uh, Commonwealth Stadium in uh, Edmonton. But really, you're endangering players and fans when you're going to be playing in two-degree weather. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm a big soccer head. And, uh, you know, I was watching that game, uh, you know, from the very beginning because the, the game against Canada was a uh, absolute uh, disaster. Yeah. And, um, you know, watching that game, well, I was very, very nervous after what I saw, you know, in a game against uh, Canada. You know, it was a horrid performance, you know. Uh, Greg Greg Berhalter made uh, egregious comments about you know dominating the you know uh, the possession and he had you know he was uh, flabbergasted that they lost you know despite dominating which got got the uh, criticism of uh, Stephen A Smith and the pardon the interruption of both Michael Wilbon and Tony Kornheiser which unfortunately that's how main you know mainstream media covers about the uh, the sports of soccer in this country and, and obviously rightfully so um so you know i was very nervous from the very very get-go i hated the idea of having to force both teams um you know to play in such horrid condition right so yeah i mean i watched it it was it was not a pretty sight you know, a lot of fans were still filing into the stadium. Um, you know, at halftime, when the U.S. had a comfortable lead, you know, uh, Honduras players, I, I believe several of them, including the goalkeepers, suffered hypothermia and had to be replaced. So, you know, it wasn't it wasn't a pretty, you know, U.S. managed to win. But, you know, again, you know, I, I know a lot of, uh, you know, People hated that idea. And I do remember back eight years ago when, you know, U.S. was playing Costa Rica, I believe in January or March around that time. Mm -hmm. You know, it was a massive snowstorm that, you know, that both teams had to play. And the U.S. Right. still managed to beat one nothing. Obviously, um, you know, I, I get it. You know, home teams usually can pick and choose their venues. But. You know, a lot of people don't like the idea, and I certainly don't think that weather has to play a huge advantage in these matters. And, and I have to tell you, you know, uh, ESPN FC, you know, they were debating about this. And if you have to rely on a weather to just to get a competitive advantage, you're not that good at all. I know Craig Burley, the former Scottish international, uh, in a, you know, a very big... Uh, critic of uh, U.S. soccer, uh, was very, very adamant about the idea. And, um, you know, I agree to that. You know, uh, Craig Burley obviously doesn't really have anything nice to say about U.S. or U.S. soccer in particular, but obviously he made a good point about, you know, the U.S. acting like a small country when it comes to these things. And uh, it kind of underscores the uh, USSF's, uh, you know, uh, lack of efforts in trying to create more, um, you know, fan base, even amongst the Latin, Latino 
uh, fan base here in America because they were so dead concerned about, you know, maybe the stadium and warmer cities like California and Florida being flooded with the, uh, uh, you know, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, Latino fans who were rooting yeah. for, you know, Costa Rica, Mexico, of course, um, you know, Panama and uh, Honduras, El Salvador, something like that. So, you know, if they can, you know, if they're not doing their part, you know, I mean, that kind of underscores the ineptness and incompetency that is the USSF. Mm-hmm. Totally agree on that, uh, Stephen. Um, you, you're, you, like I said, you're endangering fans, you're endangering players. When you have players being taken off the field because of hypothermia, those aren't conditions to be playing. That that's not that's not conducive for for football and and soccer. It is conducive for American football because that you want to have a home field advantage playing in winter, like Green Bay or Minnesota or, or even the Bears. But you just can't have that for for soccer. That's just not conducive. It's not good for anybody. And I know where the the next uh, group and the next round is going to be played in March, so we should see better weather for that, uh, especially when the United States take on takes on Mexico in the hex. Um, the the top three uh, teams will advance: Canada, United States, and Mexico are one, two, three, respectively. Panama's in fourth. Um, we expect to see some interesting play in the next round, the fourth round. But still, um, I'm just. I'm, I was really concerned for some of the players, especially when you're playing outdoors in Minnesota. If you're going to play at U.S. Bank Stadium in an enclosed space under a dome uh, and, and you're in a controlled environment there, that's one thing. And, of course, you're also going to be worried about playing um, uh, on, on artificial on the artificial surface there as well, which uh, is not uh, good for, for soccer either. But still, it, it would be a much better environment playing in that than playing than having players uh, being taken out due to hypothermia. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you have a lot of players uh, on U.S. men's national team who are playing overseas who had to make a, a long trek, uh, having played the game shortly uh, before the, uh, you know, the January camp and January, uh, tour- you know, game happened. And uh, you have a lot of MLS players who are not even in, you know, a regular season form yet. And then, yeah, Greg Berhalter threw uh, a lineup of, uh, you know, uh, players who are, you know, in shape. And yet, you you know, uh, relying on MLS players who are, you know, not even in shape and then, uh, you know, risking their health in such a terrible, terrible health. And, uh, you know, it, it, it really, you know, bears watching because, to me, they made a, a colossal mistake in their lineup against Canada that they, they could have at least gotten a point out of and made it a lot easier. So the March camp obviously is the the last of the you know their um, uh, qualifier at Mexico to start. You know, a game against Panama at home, and then a game against uh, Costa Rica. You know, the road games are obviously you know Mexico and Costa Rica. U.S. have not had had a lot of success and uh, obviously I am a little nervous, but uh, you know, I'm keeping my fingers crossed that, uh, you know, a lot of guys will be healthy and that, uh, you know, obviously much better weather condition in March. Hopefully the U uh, S will be well on their way qualifying to Qatar. 
And of course, Azteca Stadium, one of the most hostile hostile arenas in the world, not just for the United States, but for any team that goes there. Of course, that's going to transition us to our next guest. Uh, Derek Ray is a broadcaster, a fantastic broadcaster, uh, calls has called the Bundesliga for ESPN, uh, English Premier League, which has been seen on NBCSN, the late great NBCSN, we should say. Uh, also called Olympic Soccer for NBC. Uh, also called the uh, uh, Olympi- uh, World Cup Soccer for Fox, and both on the women's and the women's side. Derek, it is great. It's a great pleasure to finally talk with you. We followed each other on Twitter. I'm glad to have you on the AA team. Well, Ken and Stephen, thank you very much for the invitation. Looking forward to our conversation. And, thank you, uh, Derek. It's been a pleasure. You know, we follow each other, all, all of us on uh, Twitter, and uh, been working yeah. to have you on for quite some time now. But So uh, we are really, really excited to uh, finally have you on our show. Um, my very first question, obviously, is, you know, you're a Scotsman yes. living in uh, Massachusetts, Correct. Correct. And you are a, a bona fide American citizen as of, uh, is, is it, is it true? Technically speaking, I am. Yes. I'm, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a, an American citizen. I'm a UK citizen. Um, but um, I think of myself as somebody who in normal times would bounce around the world rather than having an allegiance to either. <laughs> <laughs> you, what's the biggest difference um Working for you know a, a network in UK versus the uh, you know working for a US network because I remember you left ESPN and then you came back uh, several years ago. Tell us about you know the differences and uh, what made you kind of uh, wanting to come back to the states. That's a great question. I've actually never been asked it, so I appreciate it. Um, I think. When I think back to 2009, there was a lot going on in my mind because at that point, ESPN had just lost the rights to the UEFA Champions League, which was very much my bread and butter. I'd been the lead voice and Fox were to take over the rights. And so I was left with a bit of a decision to make. What did I want to do? Now, I could have stayed with ESPN in the USA, but at that time, maybe conveniently for me, ESPN was on the verge of starting up a new UK operation. And that had to do with rights as well, because Satanta had just um, essentially gone into insolvency, you would say. And so ESPN stepped in and took over their UK rights. And they had to put it all together in a short space of time. So I was approached with the idea that it might be good for ESPN and it might be interesting for me to go back home to work in the UK on... ESPN's rights in the UK and conveniently as a Scotsman they had Scottish football as well as English football so it was really perfect for me and I kind of felt I had some unfinished business if you like in the UK because I'd left very young I'd been at the BBC as a young broadcaster for five years with huge opportunities to to cover the sports I love around Europe but like a lot of young people I was quite restless and so I'd jumped up the chance to move to the USA initially, actually, to be one of the press officers for the World Cup organizing committee ahead of the 1994 tournament. And from there, I went back into broadcasting with ESPN after the tournament was finished. So um, it's a long-winded answer, but um, I really wanted that chance to work back home. And you hinted at this in your question, uh, in a different kind of environment. Because remember, I've been broadcasting essentially to a world audience, but this was really 
in the days before social media, not having a lot of contact with that world audience, and we never really were sure how many people were watching and listening. Obviously, the gamers were going to the USA as well when it came to the Champions League. But to be honest, I wanted to be back in an environment where it really mattered. You know, where you had the the daily buzz and the, the daily feedback, sometimes bad. You know, it's not always good feedback when you're in an environment like that. But I think it would be fair to say that in 2009, the game hadn't evolved in the USA the way it has now. You know, I think younger people now are much more aware of football, as I call it, soccer, as they might call it. And so we were still in that period in 2009 where it was trying to kick on. And, you know, the Premier League wasn't on NBC at that point. It was on Fox and it was also to be on ESPN. And I helped out with a few of the productions from the UK side when I was based in London. So that's really where it came from. Uh, I wanted to be in the, the market or in a market where, um, you know, it was as big as the Red Sox are where I live now, you know, and, and, and I'd experienced that for, for a couple of decades. And, you know, nothing against the Red Sox. They're, they're a great team. And, um, you know, I live amongst people who, uh, who absolutely, um, you know, live and, and die with the Red Sox. But uh, I, I was getting a little bit tired of the fact that I was working with a minority sport in the USA and I wanted to be part of the majority sport. So so that's really where that came from. Um, and, and as you mentioned, uh, yeah, I, I did leave ESPN because essentially ESPN didn't keep that channel going after a few years. And I was approached by BT Sport to go and work for them amongst other broadcasters. So I did that until 2017. And then we decided that for our own reasons, we wanted to come back. We'd never sold our house here in Massachusetts. Mm. <laughs> and um, my wife is is from Massachusetts and a very proud uh, Bostonian. And so we made the move to, to come back. But really, it sort of opened new doors for me because I realized as a pure freelancer that I could then essentially go and work for not everybody, because they all have to, to want you. But um, I had the opportunity to go and do the World Cup for Fox and the Women's World Cup for Fox, to jump into NBC as a fill-in host on their Premier League coverage, to even try my hand at the NFL for Prime, because they came up with the idea that they oh, wanted awesome. a... Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah, they wanted a British sound to the NFL. So we did that for three years. And nice. um, and I've also, since 20, um, 2017, 2018, really, uh, I've been one of the voices on the FIFA video game as a commentator. So um, I've gone from being really a pure ESPN man back in the day uh, to then going to the UK to being mostly ESPN doing some other things, then BT Sport and some other things, to now being completely freelance. And, you know, I, I love my broadcasting life on that basis. Well, as someone, I, I know the Barroom Network is based in Chicago, Derek, but as a Rhode Islander living yes. south of you, one yep. of these days we got to get together and get a pint together. We have to do that. So. <laughs> Sounds like a plan. Well, I love Rhode Island, and I haven't been there so much recently um, in the pandemic. I think our mm -hmm. our lives have changed in terms of where we go and, and things like that. But, um, no, Rhode Island is beautiful, especially the coastline. So, yeah, I'll take you <laughs> up on that, Ken. Absolutely. You come down, we'll have Absolutely. clam cakes together. How's that? <laughs> 
you're on. You're on. Uh, one thing That's that one. people don't realize about the ESPN, and as someone who's covered sports media, that Rebecca Lowe was part of your network mm. uh, at ESPN UK. Oh yeah. Along along with, of course, some of the great voices you had over there. So, and of course, it was to that um, where NBC, when when they finally got the rights, needed a host. They got Rebecca and got her to move over. And now she's beloved here in the United States, I think, more than she is in the UK. So, um, yeah. Well, I'm, I, again, I'm glad you, you brought that one up, because if you go back to the start of ESPN UK, and I hadn't really thought of this until now. So you had Rebecca, you had John Champion, who, of yes. course, people know as the, the voice of MLS yep. on ESPN now, among many other things. And I was part of that as well. You had Ian Dark doing bits and mm -hmm. pieces, um, mostly for the U.S. audience, actually, as the, the commentator for ESPN US on the Premier League. And you had many other terrific broadcasters. Uh, Ray Stubbs, another one who's maybe not so yeah. well known in the US, but uh, will have appeared from time to time, uh, who's a very good friend of mine. And so they were great days because we felt we were pioneers, if you like. We were starting a brand new channel and nobody had the foggiest idea how it was going to go and how well it was going to be received. And I think there was a bit of a, a an early stigma. Oh, it's just going to be a bunch of Americans coming into the UK who don't know anything about uh, the market. And of course, there weren't really any Americans. It was actually fairly established uh, UK broadcasters who had been brought in. But the idea was to have kind of an American style in terms of the look and maybe bring some some graphic elements. And uh, yeah, it, it was a great team, a small team to work with. And um, in that sense, it, it was sort of a contrast to what I'd experienced with ESPN in the US, because we all know how big Bristol, Connecticut is, or at least how the um, how big the campus oh, yes. is there, you know, yeah. and this was the opposite. It was a much smaller setup in, in West London. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, every once in a while, ESPN here in the US would show that ESPN UK hmm. production. So we got to see Rebecca Lowe for a little yeah. bit. She also hosted a little bit of the US Women's World Cup in Berlin. Yep. And then uh, finally got hired here. Now, she, as we as I mentioned, she's so beloved here. I don't think anybody can imagine anybody hosting the Premier League. Well, and I'll tell you a story about that. I remember sitting with Rebecca during the Euros. When would it have been? 2012, Euro mm -hmm. 2012. And at that point, we both kind of had a sixth sense that the ESPN UK operation was going to end. And I vividly remember um, sitting at the bar with Rebecca and we were just sort of wondering what was going to come next. And, and we were both you know, clueless as to what was going to come next. And, you know, it wasn't sort of a, a conversation about, oh, you know, woe is us, w what is going to happen? It was kind of, well, you know, it looks as though there's going to be a new chapter, whatever it is. And I had no idea at that point that, uh, and she probably didn't either, that NBC might be in her future. And I certainly didn't know that I was bound for BT Sport. But uh, it, it's, you know, it's the nature of our business. It's a very mm -hmm. fractious business. And uh, people think it's it's so, so glamorous. And we sort of all just sworn from one broadcaster to another. But it, it's it's not quite as straightforward as that, I'd have to say. <laughs> well, thank you for the sharing the, uh, the memories of uh, your work in the uh, UK and the US. Um, before we had you on, uh, you know, Ken and I were having some uh, discussions on the uh, the uh, U.S. men's mm. national team having to play at uh, Minneapolis in a frigid uh, conditions. And, uh, you know, uh, players from Honduras suffering, you know, hypothermia and had to be replaced at halftime and all of that stuff. And, you know, I was kind of bemoaning the gross incompetency 
of the uh, USSF, you know, wanting to hold, you know, events at a, such a terrible condition for, you know, which do no justice for neither teams, obviously. Um, what is your honest take on, you know, the USSF, uh, the current uh, version of USMNT, and obviously, of course, MLS, and the, you know, the perception uh, from, you know, the UK standpoint? Well, I'll deal with the first part of the question first. I think this was almost an experiment that got out of hand with regard to St. Paul, Minnesota. Yeah. I think that the U.S. soccer people had looked at what they had done and the success they'd had by going to colder venues at colder times of the year and it perhaps being a, a 12th man, if you like, you know, specifically Columbus, Ohio. Sure. And, you know, so I, I get all that, but I, I think that, you do have to look at what the the sort of the end consequence is of a decision like that. And um, I, you know, don't live in Minnesota, but as we've discussed, I live in Massachusetts and I know how cold it gets in Massachusetts. And I know, frankly, how ridiculous it would be to be playing a, an international match uh, in Foxborough, Massachusetts right, right. about now. You know, <laughs> you, you, you really are at the mercy of the weather. Uh, we had an ice storm last week. We had a huge snowstorm the week before, as Ken knows. Yep. And, um, you know, Minnesota is even more severe. So, you know, there was always the danger it was going to be like this. And I think, yeah, you're thinking you're playing against a team like Honduras that is not going to be at all familiar with these conditions. But, I have to be honest, and you asked for my honest answer, so I'll give it to you. Watching it as a spectator, a very interested spectator last week, I, I had a hard time with it. I, I was just watching the you know, the way the ball was moving, and, and that wasn't natural. You know, it, it wasn't yeah. skimming along the surface. It was, it was it, bouncy it, too, yeah. It was, it was that bouncy um, sort of bobbly surface because of the, the firmness of the pitch because it, it couldn't be anything other than firm. And what came through to me as well was, you know, this was meant to be a really sort of big, lively, up-tempo night for the U.S., but the crowd sounded quiet. And I communicated <laughs> yeah, with a few, was, yeah, a few fans after the game who said, yeah, we were quiet because, you know, we were we were freezing cold, Ooh, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, when it's as, as low as that temperature-wise, you have such things as frostbite warnings. You know, we have them in, mm -hmm. in our neck of the woods here as well. You know, don't stay outside for long. You know, but be, be very careful about that. And, you know, I think we're well accustomed to the dangers of, you know, things like um, heat stroke, the things like, you know, playing in, in conditions that are overly hot. I remember the 1994 World Cup, um, Jack Charlton, the then manager of the Republic of Ireland, just, you know, losing his marbles over Ireland having to play in the conditions they did in Orlando yeah. at, at around lunchtime in, in, you know, horrendous conditions for, for football, you know, temperature over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. And, you know, that was rightly criticised. So I think if we're going to say that is rightly criticized we can also level criticism against what we saw in minneapolis now yeah the u.s got the result but as we know a couple of honduran players um had to go off because of the cold because of as we were told hypothermia and that's no laughing matter you know yeah so i think that you can have a home advantage without going to those extremes and I do think that lessons will have been learned. I do think that there'll be people who will say, yeah, okay, that, that did go a little bit too far. That wasn't what we were really trying to achieve. I think they were trying to achieve, you know, 
conditions that were maybe close to to freezing, which would still have the effect of not being great for Honduras and would help the USA. But hopefully never again. Uh, hopefully they return to Minnesota because it's a great state, a great stadium, but, you know, preferably in June rather than in the, the, the depths of winter. <laughs> Derek, you, um, I see the headset on. Um, yeah. You're used to calling games, especially uh, throughout the years, uh, in a studio, off a monitor. Mm. But with COVID, how has that changed? I mean, have you had to call games from home rather than going to ESPN or going to um, a- another generic studio and having to call the games? It's been a big mixture, actually. Um, yeah, you're right. I wear this headset rather a lot and, and have done over the last two years. And we quickly realized with the video game, first of all, that we needed to come up with a different setup because uh, typically I'd go into a studio, we'd record for a few days. But in the early part of the pandemic, that wasn't possible. You know, it wasn't mm-hmm. an easy case of saying, yeah, I'm going to go into a, a studio and do what I've always done. So, um just kind of behind the, the, the wall behind me, we have a, a proper audio setup. Um, I, I found the smallest room in the house that has the best acoustics. And that is my, my home broadcast studio. Mm-hmm. And um, that's had a lot of use over the last two years with the FIFA game, the different editions of the FIFA game, but also with the Bundesliga for the yep. world feed, because I, I do a lot of the world feeds that um, are done in English. So you'll get that on ESPN Plus, but also in, in many other countries, because um, just like the Premier League, the Bundesliga has its own English language world feed. And um mm-hmm. So I do that from the, the studio in there as well. Uh, yeah, we've had to all adapt. I think everybody in every walk of life has had to adapt. And, uh, you know, I won't, I won't lie to you. There are some benefits from it as well, you know, rather than having to get in my car and maybe drive two or three hours, I can roll out of bed and, and go into my, my little studio and broadcast from there. So, um, yeah, and that, that works great. But there are times, of course, when I have to be at ESPN. And uh, I'm actually on the verge of, of my first long trip for quite a while um, coming up in a couple of weeks. So we'll see how that goes. But, um, yeah, we've all been adapting. Have oh, you talked, yeah, to, have you talked with Fox about uh, going to Cotter or, or have they made any plans about, uh, about Cotter uh, coming up this year? I'm not at liberty to say to, to say uh, anything about okay. the World Cup. Um, all I'll say is I, I did the last one um, and loved it uh, working for the Fox team. But, um, yeah, time will tell in terms of their announcements. Okay. We'll, we'll okay. wait on that then. But I think you're at least giving us an answer. Sure. <laughs> Let's talk about Bundesliga. You know, uh, you called the game uh, for a long, long time. You're very, very fluent in uh, German you know, I, I follow your Twitter handle because obviously I've lived in Frankfurt for several years. I yeah. followed the uh, Eintracht Frankfurt. You know, we had a little bit of interaction on that side before. Yes. Um, there have been many, many Americans who have made uh, the journey to, you know, uh, Bundesliga, which is not unusual. Even be, well before then, um, in the 90s, German Americans obviously made their marks. And now it's, it seems like a lot of Americans have made their uh, transition to Bundesliga and been, you know, successful. Christian Pulisic, obviously, the, uh, you know, the most successful one so far. Why, why Americans have been so coveted and have been somewhat, you know, decent in the Bundesliga, in your opinion? 
I think there are many factors to that one, Stephen. I, I think we could probably go back a number of years and look at Americans anyway uh, playing in Germany, maybe not at that highest level, but there were always one or two, you know, who, who going back to the days of Eric Winalda, uh, when he was in, in Germany, and yeah. Connor Casey, another one who, who landed there. And um, I've always been told by coaches in Germany that Americans are – they're very good students, so they tend to come and really want to work and they want to learn, and they generally don't expect too much. At least this was the previous generation. Now, maybe it's changed with the new generation. They're going there with an opportunity. They see it as, if you like, their, their first ticket to Europe because it's very clear, you know, and I didn't properly answer your question about MLS earlier because we were talking about um, Minnesota. But if you go back to the earlier days of, of MLS, it was a different league back then. And sure. there wasn't this focus on going to Europe at a young age. You know, players would even complete college. You know, what a concept that is nowadays for yeah. um, footballers in the USA. But they would complete college and then go and play in MLS, you know, starting at the age of 21 or, or 22. That's sure. not happening now, you know, so that the mm -hmm. players who have ability and obviously they're being encouraged by their parents and by their coaches, they are seeing that, yeah, if they do well in the MLS academies, then at the age of, you know, 17, 18, they are going to potentially attract the attention of Bundesliga clubs. You know, somebody like George Bello, who's mm -hmm. just gone to Armenia Bielefeld. So sure. I, I think it, it's, um, it, it's two things. It's, Knowledge of that market by the American players and their agents and their advisors, but knowledge of that market by the Bundesliga clubs. And they all have specialists in Germany whose full-time job it is to monitor what's happening in a country like the USA. And I think the MLS academies are, you know, certainly getting much better. I think the, the quality of player is getting better. And um, I, I think it's just a, a good fit. You know, in Germany, they talk a lot about, um, you know, the verb passen, which means literally to, to fit, to match. And I think that's what we have is we have a good match between um, the vision of young American players where they see themselves, what they want to do in terms of the education process and the German clubs who really are constructed upon mm -hmm. young players who they can polish, you know, diamonds that can be polished, if you like, if you think of that concept, and then eventually sold on because that that is the business model. It's a, a sustainable business model in Germany. You know, you you improve a player and you sell him on. So I think it will continue to work for, for quite some time. Awesome. Awesome perspective. Uh, you know, I definitely would like to see more, you know, successful Americans, especially the at a younger age, you know, make a, a jump to – uh, Europe. Not yeah. all of them are going to be successful, you know. For every Christian, you know, Polsiches of the world, there are obviously several others who have uh, fallen through the cracks. And uh, but obviously, in order for the U.S. to uh, you know continue to uh, make you know their way to be more competitive in the world, obviously, a places like uh, you know Bundesliga would be a perfect place to to get their uh, you know uh, craft uh, going there, right? Yeah, no, a hundred percent. And I think you know, it, you you might dream of England, and it's natural that these young players are dreaming of England because we've spoken about it earlier. You know, NBC do a fabulous job with the coverage; it's front and center. But I think there's also a realization that it's pretty pointless going to a Premier League club at at a young age as an American because. Sure. 
realistically, what are you going to do? You're going to go there. You're going to be, you know, far away from the first team. You're not going to mm -hmm. be involved in that at all. You're going to have a difficult time even getting close to the first team. So maybe if you're lucky, you go out on loan. But why do that when you can sort of, you know, cut out that middleman, go to Germany, know that you have a better chance of getting first team football. Yeah, granted, you've got some cultural things that you've got to adapt to, a new language for one. Um, and yeah, you know, you do have to go through that, but you'll be given time to adapt, just as Joe Scally, the American, was when he went to Borussia Mönchengladbach. So I think um, all these things, all these roads for the American player at the moment lead to the Bundesliga. Okay. You, you think the U.S. will qualify for the Qatar? I do, yes. I, I do think they will. I mean, it, it's a bit tighter than maybe a lot of people want, but I'll be yeah. surprised if they, they fail. I know they've got two difficult away games and then Panama at home. Um, but no, I'll, I'll, I'll be surprised at this stage if, if they make it. I mean, I think that um, it probably should have been more comfortable than it actually sure. has been. Because if you think about it, this is a poor Mexico. This is not Mexico yeah. at the, the very best. So, you know, they've sort of, when you look at the competition there, that they've not had to to really fear Mexico the way they might have done a few years ago. Canada, you know, very good. I think I think it's great for CONCACAF that Canada have improved. But I think the other teams are are poorer. I think Costa Rica are are poorer than they were. Yeah. Panama, really, yeah. I, yeah, Panama, an old team as well. And then you look at you know El Salvador, Honduras. I I, I don't think it's a a stellar edition of of CONCACAF and. Uh, you know, I don't like this expression "golden generation" about the USA. It doesn't. Yeah, well I know you were very, very hypercritical of that. Yeah, I, yeah. I just think it, it's first of all, why would you say that? Because all it does is put pressure on your players. But secondly, yeah, sure. to be a golden generation, uh, that generation has to actually have achieved something. You know, and uh, you could say, yeah, uh, 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 the, the potential generation. Then great. You know, to, to me, that that's a, a good fit in terms of the, the language. But golden generation, no, not yet. You know, they're mostly young players who are still trying to find their way. And, um, you know, but based on the potential that they have, uh, I, I think it, it should have been a bit easier. But no, I, I think the USA will be will be in Qatar. A couple more questions with uh, Derek Ray from ESPN. Um Derek, I wanted to talk about, you know, football, racism in football. Yeah. Um, obviously, it's a hotbed issue. Um, I do have, you know, um, an article that was posted, you know, the Celtics uh, manager, Andrzej Poldodogo. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure you're probably from, I, familiar with that one. And I'm not I, trying to, you know, single yeah. ask, you know, yeah. uh, you know Scot Scotland, you know, your, no, no. your native country. Obviously, you know, UK as a whole has had its issues, of course. And uh, I remember uh, FIFA uh, chairman uh, Gianni Infantino made some really racist comments about having the reason to have World Cup every two years is so that, uh, you know, Africans and immigrants won't be crossing the uh, the Mediterranean or something like that. Obviously, um, you probably are aware of, you know, the, the comments uh, made by uh, Celtics manager in answering mm -hmm. questions yeah. about, the, you know, the uh, Japanese players that were signed recently. Um, what are your overall thoughts on the, uh, you know, the racism in football, uh, not just in UK, but also, you know, you know, it's a, the, the racism, obviously, having lived in the U.S. for a long time yourself, you're you see it everywhere. You know, the, you know, the city of Boston has had terrible history and reputation, and all that kind of stuff. What is your overall perspective? 
uh, of uh, the you know the uh, the racism in football and everything. Well, I think not just in football, as a world, uh, we still have an awful lot to learn and we're learning every day. And I think it's an educational process for a a lot of people. And, you know, football, if you like, is a cross section of society. And that means the good and the bad. And unfortunately, in football, we, we do get a lot of the bad. And, you know, I obviously as as somebody who would say he is a, a caring citizen of the world because it's the way I, I see myself and I, I love cultures. I, I, you know, to me that that is what makes the world go round. The fact that you know, if, if I go to Japan, the culture is distinctly different. If I go to to Germany, um, you know, people know that I, I'm you know always have been very much in love with German culture. Um, no matter where I go, I try to imbibe that culture and and I see it as something to to cherish. So I've never understood this idea that you denigrate somebody else's culture, you know, which is um, what somebody who you would say is a racist is is doing. Um, and, yeah, I, I think we can all, as people who, who try to, to care and, and try to help, we can all do our bit. But there are always going to be educational aspects that are necessary. Now, you asked me about Ange Postacoglu. I, I thought his statement was brilliant. I, I think the journalist who asked the question wasn't trying to be disrespectful with the question. I think yeah. there, is, there is a tendency in football, and um, I think we've all been guilty. I have probably been guilty of it as a commentator. There is a tendency in football to come up with stereotypes for every nation. You know, for every country. I mean, the country I come from, you'll still have people saying, "Oh, yeah, they're just long ball merchants. They just they just play kick and rush football." Those Scots, you know, yeah, they don't know how to play football. It's more like rugby. I, I've had that said to me. Now, you know, I could take that as offensive. It is pretty offensive because, um, you know, I think Scots try to play football as much as anybody else. We're not as good at it as, say, Brazil or Argentina or, or France or Germany, but we're a small country. But, you know, so I think the stereotype, of course, in this case was that Ange Postacoglu, who used to coach in Japan, assigned yeah. all these Japanese players. And, mm-hmm. you know, he was asked to expand on that. And the answer he gave was a very good one. He said, well, you know, he said, just be careful by saying um, I've signed Japanese players. I've signed four individuals who happen to be from Japan, you know. And, um, you know, just as, uh, you know, somebody of somebody from Japan or of Japanese descent has his own personality. So do I, as, as a Scot, have my own personality. And it's distinctly different from somebody from, uh, you know, from the next town over from me, who's my age and maybe with my upbringing. We're all individuals, even though we have that common cultural background. But I think it's a reminder what he said, and it's a reminder that we do have to watch our words all the time and we have to watch our, our feelings about things like this. Because, And, and it, to be honest, it's the reason why I, one of the things I really try very hard to do is to get pronunciations spot on. Um, sure. of, of names from all cultures, because to me, that's the ultimate respect is to to say a name. You know, for example, I was doing a Japanese player who I have terrific respect for, 38-year-old Makoto Hasebe right. know, from Eintracht Frankfurt. And I try to say it as close. I don't speak Japanese, but I try to, <laughs> I try to say it in a way that if a Japanese person is watching, that he or she will go, ah, oh, okay, that commentator has done his homework. You know, at least I can hear that. 
And um, so it, it, it comes down to respect. And, you know, as Ange said, you know, he, he has run into many different Scots and they're all different. So, you know, let's just be careful. There's <laughs> <laughs> a comedy. Uh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, Derek, uh, uh, of course, we as, as someone who has called the World Cup, one thing that, as uh, Stephen mentioned, is that uh, FIFA is thinking about exp- uh, going every two years. It's mm. not cemented in stone yet, and also going to 48 teams. What is what is your th- thought about playing once every two years and also the possibility of expansion and just playing two group cup games, two group games? Well... I come at this from from maybe a different angle than some. I, I, first of all, I'm not in favour of the every two years. Mm-hmm. I, I, I yeah, think that I, I think that you know I, I go back to was born in the late '60s. First World Cup I can remember was 1974, and I can remember every World Cup, and I can remember pretty much every game I've watched in every World Cup. That's maybe odd, but of course it is my business. But I can think of friends you know who are not in the business who would be the same if i said yeah 1982 world cup remember that group that italy were in with peru and uh, poland and cameroon oh yeah all those draws and then italy went on and, and won it you remember all that if all of a sudden we go to every two years i think we've lost all that and i think the world cup should be special it should be something that we put on a pedestal and to me that we're not going to be doing that if, if it becomes something that's just every two years. And then I, I confidently predict that one of these days, without irony, we would say, oh, yeah, well, the last World Cup, uh, that's when Country X decided to play a B team or a C team, you know. And, um, you know, it's a bit like what happened with the FA Cup in England many years ago when, when that started getting downgraded. Before, it was unthinkable to be playing B teams, but now it happens routinely. I think it would happen with the World Cup if we had it every two years. Um, so, but, but what I would say is I actually am not against expanding the World Cup in terms of the number of countries who take part in it. And again, I say that um, as somebody who's been a bit wounded by the process coming from a country like Scotland that used to routinely qualify for every World Cup in my youth, 1974, 78, yep. 82, 86, 90, missed 94, alas, that made it in 1998 hasn't made it since because Europe has got so devilishly difficult to get out of, you know, I think that's a fact. I think you would, you know, you'd look at countries, middle ranking countries from Europe and you would probably say, you know, are they on a level with a country like Japan? You'd probably say, yeah, they are, you know, they are. Japan probably benefits from being in Asia where it's a big power within Asia. You know, if, you know, for example, if Japan were in Europe, would they qualify for every world cup? I don't know no. that they would. I think they would sometimes, but I don't think they would sure. every every time. So, you know, trying to be fair-minded about it. So, and sure. then you have a- Africa, for example, that is underrepresented. You know, right. I, I think there's no doubt Africa is underrepresented. Um, I think, you know, CONCACAF, again, we spoke about the USA. CONCACAF, I'm not going to say is overrepresented, but it's a bit easier to qualify from CONCACAF for a country like the USA and a country like Mexico. As we said, this is not a good Mexico team, but they're probably still going to qualify. I don't sure. think they would necessarily in in a in a more difficult um, part of the world. So, so you know what I'm saying. I mm-hmm. I, I think it, it would be in order to expand the World Cup. That's where I would go with it. I would say more mm-hmm. teams, no problem sure. with that at all. But let's keep it once every four years. Absolutely. Um, one thing we would be remiss in uh, not mentioning. Uh, you, we talked about a little bit beforehand, but you're now the voice of the FIFA video game. 
um, taking over for the legendary Martin Tyler. Yeah. Um, how have you enjoyed calling the uh, calling the video game? It's great fun, Ken. It's a different kind of discipline. It's probably not what people imagine because, of course, I'm not doing it live. Uh, right. We're essentially, if you think about it this way, it's a bit like, you know, with the, the ice skating, you have the, the free program that's wonderfully flamboyant. <laughs> that, 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 that's more like what we do on a week-to-week -week basis in commentary on a game. But then you have this other thing with ice skating called technical merit. You know, these little sort of technical <laughs> exercises. That's more what it's like with the video game. Because, of course, you know, I'm not doing anything live, but I'm trying to, to have everything technically good so that it can live up to being live when it does go live, or at least as close as possible to that. And, you know, I'm not watching video when I'm doing it. You know, I'm, I'm pulling things out of my brain and my imagination. You know, it's sort of the, the theater of the mind when I'm doing it. And the producers, it's a great team I work with. You know, they'll give me scenarios and it's up to me to come up with as many unique ways of, of conveying that scenario. So it's a different kind of discipline. And um, we, we do very much work as a team. And it's not lost on me the, the magnitude of the, the game around the world and the iconic nature of FIFA to, to so many people, particularly, you know, the, the generation that's, uh, that's younger than my one. Yeah, absolutely. Derek Ray, I can talk to you for hours. And uh, the fact that now that I know you're in Massachusetts, we got to, like I said, you have an open invitation, come to Rhode Island, and we'll have some clam cakes together and have a pint. Um, and uh, hope we can do that uh, when your schedule allows it. So we'll have to have the the, the, the red Rhode Island clam chowder. Yes, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> yes. Massachusetts yes. Clam yes. Chowder, yeah. when, when it gets a little bit warmer and we don't have to deal with ice storms, uh, we can definitely do that. Um, Derek Ray, uh, announcer for the Bundesliga is called the World Cup, Olympic soccer, the English Premier League, uh, Scottish Premier League, just about any league you can imagine at this point. Thank you very much for joining us. And uh, we will, again, have you on down, down the line. Thank you so much for joining the AA team tonight. Thanks Thank for having you, me, guys. Thank you so much. Thank you both. Thank you. And the AA team will continue after this. Hey, everybody, it's Aldo Gandhi, and I just want to let you know really quickly that our swag shop is reopened. DeepDishTees.com is where you go, and that's tees with T-E-E-S. Clever name, guys. They're the new home of our merchandise. You can get T-shirts. You can get caps. You can get coffee mugs. You can get hoodies. You can get all sorts of good stuff, and you'll help out the bar room with the purchase. So head over to DeepDishTees.com. We'd like to thank our guests today, uh, Stephen. Uh, again, fantastic job in getting the guests uh, today. Uh, Derek Ray, uh, I can listen to him for hours. Uh, he, he can read the phone book. Uh, <laughs> those who may remember what the phone book was, uh, yeah. those of viewers. But uh, I could definitely, if he actually wants to read Craig's list view listings, I could definitely hear that, uh, listen to that for just about hours. And, of course, C.J. Toledano, a uh, great uh, guest as well. we like to thank both of them for coming on tonight. Absolutely. Another great show. You know, we, our show wouldn't be, you know, where we are without the uh, great guests and, uh, you know, great conversations. So, uh, you know, we want to thank our guests uh, tonight. And, uh, you know, we have more uh, great guests lined up for you, you know, in our next show and even beyond that, too. So we, we've uh, booked up some nice guests uh, all the way into the month of March. And, uh, you know, we're definitely going to, uh, you know, Keep everybody uh, interested and uh, hope to, uh, you know, gain more followers and interest uh, going forward as well. 
Yes, and you can see the the crawl below us uh, of some of the guests that will be coming on in the next few weeks here on the Double A team. Uh, the last uh, thing we want to discuss, uh, we discussed, uh, of course, is the Super Bowl, which will be played this Sunday at SoFi Stadium in Los. A oh, I shouldn't say Los Angeles; it's Inglewood, California. <laughs> Residents of Inglewood will not, will always get on my case for not saying that properly. Um, uh the last show we had on, uh, I said San Francisco and Cincinnati. You said Los Angeles and Kansas City. We got it. We both got it half right. right. Half right. Half right. We both got it half right. Uh, we have yeah. Los Angeles and Cincinnati playing um, in the Super Bowl. Should be exciting. Should be quite interesting. Let's do our picks. Uh, who are you choosing, Stephen? Well, you know, I'm in uh, Columbus and, uh, you know, Ohio. And obviously – you know, it's uh, heavily slanted towards the uh, Browns, but obviously there are still, you know, a decent amount of uh, Bengals fans in this area. And, um, you know, the Bengals obviously gives a lot of Bears fans uh, hope. I tweeted uh, a long time, a while ago, if uh, Mike Brown, the notoriously uh, cheap owner and, uh, you know, gets a lot of flack and deservingly so, can go to Super Bowl with the Bengals. I tell you, the Bears, even with George and Virginia McCaskey, have a legitimate shot at going to Super Bowl in a not not too uh, distant future, I hope. But um, I tell you, um, you know, home team hosting the uh, Super Bowl again, Tampa Bay a year ago, and now Los Angeles. I tell you, um, as much as I like to root for, you know, the Bengals here in Ohio, I think the Rams have a better defense, obviously playing at home in uh, SoFi. Uh, they do have, uh, you know, uh, the bandages that, uh, you know, I can't uh, ignore too much. Um, I think the pressure is definitely on the Rams to uh, get it done. Um, I'm going to say Rams will win this one 34-31. Uh, and I believe Stafford will win the MVP. Okay. I'm going to agree with that. I think the Rams are built for now. Matthew Stafford wasn't brought in to win later. He was brought in to win now. Uh, that's why they decided the Rams decided to trade Jared Goff to Detroit to get Matthew Stafford. They also brought on Vaughn Miller from the, the from the Denver Broncos, uh, a man who has played in a Super Bowl and won a Super Bowl. Uh they also have Aaron Donald, who, who has the bitter taste of the last Super Bowl the Rams were in and losing to the New England Patriots in an absolutely horrendous Super Bowl that the Patriots won 13-3. to yeah. um, I have a feeling that um, while the Bengals are built for the future, and yes, they did uh, get and defeat a Kansas City Chiefs team, which I think did more to play to lose that game rather than play yeah. to win, uh, the Bengals took advantage of that and managed to come back from an 18-point deficit to win the game, and they deserve to win that game, by the way. Right. Uh, I will say the Rams will win this game. I will say they will win 34-20. to 20. Um, I think that that offensive line by the Cincinnati Bengals, which we saw against the Tennessee Titans uh, back in wildcard weekend, um, they didn't play very well and also managed to get uh, Joe Burrow sacked nine times They just, despite – that they defeated the Tennessee Titans, which were the number one seed, uh, actually right. the divisional round. I'm going to have to pick the Los Angeles Rams. And I think that with the um, Cooper Cup and also OBJ 
and uh, the, the the weapons that Matthew Stafford has to throw, and plus they're playing at home again, I'm going to say that that's going to be the advantage the Rams will need. They have they're a, they're the home team, even though they'll be technically the the visiting team in the in the Super Bowl. They'll sure. be going there. They get to sleep at home. They get to take the same familiar uh, route to the to the game. Um, uh, you know. I don't think they're going to be uh, having to suffer that much while the Bengals, of course, having to having to travel a couple of time zones. Um, I'm going to say the Rams will win by 14. So that's my pick. Okay. We'll wait and see for the uh, Super Bowl. And uh, we, you know, we're really excited about the, this one, you know, the halftime show is going to be also great. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll come back and talk about it in two weeks, obviously, and uh, look back at the Super Bowl and, any other interesting uh, news? You know, maybe the latest development on the uh, Brian Flores lawsuit, uh, as well as the, you know, if there's going to be any breakthrough in the negotiations for baseball. You know, among other things that uh, we can uh, keep an eye out on, and uh, you know, we look forward to uh, come back, coming back here again, same time in two weeks from tonight. Yeah, and by that time, the Olympics will be – oh, I believe the Olympics will be over by that time. So we can discuss uh, the closing ceremony yeah. and anything else that happened in the developments in the last uh, – over the last – the, the uh, glorious days, uh, the 17 days or 16 days or whatever they have at the Olympics. Uh, thank you so much for joining us again tonight, and uh, thank you for joining us on the Barroom Network. He is Stephen Nagishi. I am Ken Fang for our producer, Aldo Gandia. Thank you once again to CJ Teledano and Derek Ray, our guests. Um, follow them on Twitter. Follow their content. And uh, thank you so much for joining us. And we'll see you again in two weeks on the AA team here on the Barroom Network. Good night.